0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com.
1: Welcome to At Barron's, I'm Andy Serwer. And welcome to our guest, Lynn Martin, President of the New York Stock Exchange. Lynn, great to see you.
2: Great to see you too. Thanks for having me on, Andy.
1: So you recently wrote about three trends for this year, which are volatility, the return of the IPO market, and the strength of the US capital markets. I want to ask you about all three of them. Starting with IPOs, it looked Mm -hmm. like we are off to a good start in January. I wonder how the pipeline, confidential filings is going, and what you anticipate for the balance of the year.
2: Yeah, we're off to a really encouraging start in January. If I look at January of 2024 compared with January 2022, proceeds raised are up almost 70%. So that's really a great sign. Still off from 21, but I view 21 as more of one of the tails in the overall bell curve of the US capital markets. Uh, So, really strong start. Big deals getting done across multiple sectors. I'm very optimistic that we're going to see more deals come to market. We've had a few in February. We're gearing up for an active March, April, whatever the case may be. Very strong pipeline of companies looking to tap the capital markets.
1: Is there some hesitancy and reluctance given the uncertainty out there, which maybe goes into the volatility question?
2: You know, the biggest challenge, I think, with the IPO markets has really been sponsors getting their heads around the new valuations, right? And everyone got used to valuations being elevated in 2020, 2021. So 2022, 2023, the markets reset, ultimately. Companies are looking now, though, at tapping the U.S. capital markets as really an efficient way to raise capital. If you look at the public markets, there's nothing more transparent, liquid, uh, deep pools of liquidity that allow companies to finance their operations and, importantly, to raise the capital that they need for their next great product, their next great idea, acquiring businesses. There's a certain currency that comes along with being a public company, so I'm really optimistic that we're now at the point where companies are looking to tap the right. public market.
1: So it's just maybe getting used to this higher, longer environment for one thing. Um, let me ask you about primary direct listings because that was yeah. uh, there was a lot of talk about that. Has it come to fruition or where does that stand?
2: Well, over the last couple of years, specifically 2022, 2023, you didn't see a lot of direct listings come to market. Prior to that, though, I mean, we pioneered the concept of the primary direct listing in 2020, 2021, you saw companies like Roblox and Warby, well-known brands tap the markets in that way, get public in the form of using the primary direct listing. Uh, I think we're gonna see some more companies with the well-known brands look to use that vehicle in the future. But given that we're still in the reopening of the IPO markets, you're probably going to see them fewer and further between, at least for 2024 and possibly 2025.
1: All right, let's talk about volatility. And maybe it's the new reality. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. How do you measure volatility? And importantly, what does that mean for retail investors?
2: One of the things that we look at is obviously the barometer of volatility in the equity markets, which is the VIX something below 20 for a sustained period of time, as the VIX has been, really shows that you can go public and you're not going to see wild swings. Now, you are, in my opinion, going to have days when economic data comes out where you are going to see the market react. Um, But it's going to be heavily driven off of macro type of events. You know, what happens with inflation, what happens with interest rates, those types of newsworthy events. What you saw in 2022, though, is you saw sustained periods of volatility. So I make that important distinction because if I think about what's in the mind of an issuer, it's that sustained period of volatility as opposed to individual days that the market is volatile, driven off of some macroeconomic news. Importantly, though, you know, markets are so interconnected, so you can't just look at the measure of equity vol. You've got to also, in this environment, look at treasury vol. Uh, The move index, for example, is one of our indices. And if it's above 100, it means there is sustained volatility in the interest rate market. And we're still in a period where that's the case. So I think it's gonna be interesting to see the dynamics between the fixed income markets and the equity markets play through this year.
1: So stay the course for investors and block out the noise, is that kind of the message? I think or? so,
2: and mm-hmm. you know, invest for the long term. That's what right. we really told, told customers. Like, don't get caught up in the noise of any one given day. If you invest a dollar today, it has proven to be worth a lot more in the future but you can't focus on the day-to-day moves
1: right and getting back to this u.s capital markets and the strength yeah. i mean with all the belly aching we do in this country our capital markets are certainly still a beacon for the world you look at a company say like birkenstock yep. maybe should have listed you would think in europe instead turn to you guys talk to us about that
2: yeah i mean it's one thing that we're so focused on at the new york stock exchange and i'm personally Focused on is ensuring that our policymakers, our regulators don't lose sight of the fact that our U.S. capital markets are the envy of the world. There is no more efficient place to raise capital than the U.S. markets because of all the dynamics I talked about earlier the breadth of investors, the deep pools of liquidity, the transparency that comes along with being a U.S. public company. Other nations would love to have that position, but they don't. Companies turn to the U.S. And not only did we see it with like a Birkenstock, which you just noted, but we've seen some transfers out of the U.K. in particular to the U.S. markets. You know, we just recently welcomed Flutter, which was um, a $20, $30 billion company which just moved their listing to the New York Stock Exchange at the end of January. But they're, you know, a brand that is better known by their U.S. business, FanDuel. Uh, So they, they really took advantage of the fact of the brand notoriety that they have with one of their largest and fastest growing businesses. Um, to take advantage of the U.S. markets.
1: Right. We also have rule of law here, which is another distinctive characteristic in the United States. What about China and the Chinese companies? I know that there have been some delistings. The the value of those companies has been diminished in the United States. What is your take on that relationship now?
2: I tend to look at the world with glass half-full goggles. So to speak, uh, I think the positive since I hopped in the seat is that there is now a rule set associated with a Chinese company going public in the U.S. Importantly, there's the PCAOB audit piece, which adds that transparency, which has now been figured out. I was very pleased to see at the end of 2022, when the companies that were listed in the U.S. headquartered In China, you know, found a path forward passing their PCAOB audits, which I thought was a a good thing for the capital markets. Uh, And now that there is a path for a company to go public, I think you will continue to see companies go public out of China.
0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at Apollo.com/slash private credit.
1: The New York Stock Exchange is a subsidiary of ICE Intercontinental yep. Exchange. Can you tell us how the New York Stock Exchange fits into the overall company, Lynn?
2: Yeah, so ICE is a company that has followed a very deliberate playbook of using cutting-edge technology to modernize marketplaces. So if I think of our three big segments, and the way we report is through those three segments, there's the exchanges business, squarely the New York Stock Exchange is in the exchanges, Uh, segment alongside our Global Futures Exchanges and Clearinghouse Footprint Network. Um, We uh, have amazing contracts there. It's really where, where we got our start at ICE. If you think about the energy markets and transforming the energy markets, that's really been one of our core pillars in that business. Uh, second segment's my old business, fixed income and data services business. It's the business that was started um, nine years ago now, almost, which really focused on adding transparency to opaque markets. And then our most recent vertical is our mortgage technology business, which again follows the same playbook we've continuously applied. Put cutting, put cutting edge technology in place to drive transparency and efficiency for opaque processes. And that's exactly what we're achieving through our mortgage tech business. Now importantly, what pulls all of those businesses together is really the data Mm -hmm. business. Uh, Data is such an important output of a vibrant, liquid, transparent marketplace such as the New York Stock Exchange. But more importantly, you take that output to make a marketplace more transparent, more liquid. And that's exactly what we're doing with some of the more opaque marketplaces we see.
1: Right. And ICE is a publicly traded company. Yeah. I'll get back to that in a second. But I wanted to ask you about what you see as the biggest opportunities and challenges for the New York Stock Exchange, and maybe what's your strategy for the business?
2: Yeah. So, one of the areas we've been squarely focused on is improving our own technology. It has been a five year journey probably a little bit more than that, where we've basically had to reconstruct the bridge while driving the cars over at the same time. So it was a very delicate process that we undertook. At the end of last year, we completed that process. So it has been a moment of pride for us as we see the amount of messages we process every day up more than 60% and response times what people uh, measure in terms of when they receive an acknowledgement of an order back from us, cut in half. Our focus is squarely on adding transparency to the equity markets. And importantly, particularly during 2024, continuing to be the stewards of the U.S. capital markets. And since the U.S. plays such a critical role in the global economy, in a lot of respects being the stewards of the global economy.
1: You have a big competitor, and you're in a dogfight every day with the NASDAQ. Your stock has outperformed the NASDAQ recently over the past one to three years, I think, and their stock has done better longer term. How do you think about competing against NASDAQ?
2: You know, with the New York Stock Exchange, I just don't think a lot about the competitive landscape, mainly because we have a very different mission. We have a very different platform. We have a very different responsibility being the world's largest exchange. And then if I look at some of the other businesses that we have, there really isn't a competitor. There are competitors for products, so to speak, but there isn't one large overarching competitor to ICE.
1: Is there an opportunity to be more of a global exchange? That Mm -hmm. seemed to be all the rage maybe a while back, Mm -hmm. maybe less so now. What about that opportunity? Yeah,
2: one of the things we've been focused on over the last two years is to build bridges for commerce. So we've signed six memorandums of understanding with little other exchanges. So I think about TSE, for example. Um, Canada. Yep. Uh, no, Tokyo. Oh, Tokyo. Tokyo. I thought yep. oh,
1: Toronto. I got that confused. I'm to- sorry. Tokyo
2: Stock Exchange. Um, mm-hmm. We also signed with Johannesburg Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. Uh Stock Exchange the the uh, exchange in Indonesia, more recently Abu Dhabi. So we've been focused on building commercial bridges to allow for cooperation, where if you take geopolitics for the side, companies operate around the globe. So our role is to ensure that commerce continues to flow freely.
1: And, and just a quick follow-up, what are those memorandums actually entail? How do you Yeah, there's
2: collaboration on listing standards, mm-hmm. collaboration right. on things such as e- ETF development. That's a big area of focus. Um, collaboration on various types of reporting metrics that companies may do, just so there's not necessarily a regulatory arbitrage when right. they think about raising capital in domestic markets as well as...
1: Lynn, you really have kind of a singular perch when it comes to being the president of the New York Stock Exchange. And I'm wondering how that informs your take on what the economy is doing. Yeah. And what is your take on the economy then? And who do you talk to? Where do you get that information from?
2: Yeah, so I tend to be a very data-driven person, a very technology-focused person. So I'm always looking at the data, Um, things like strong unemployment uh, numbers, as well as, you know, Inflation, stickiness of inflation and how it ebbs and flows. And then obviously the volatility metrics that I mentioned earlier. Qualitatively, though, I talked to our network of CEOs. Our CEOs are amongst the greatest CEOs in the market. Our 2,400 list of companies span multiple, multiple sectors. um, And they're the, like I said, they're the greatest CEOs in the market. It's more how are people feeling?
1: How are they feeling? Uh, You
2: know, in general, I think people are feeling okay. Um, Certainly not as worried as we all were in 2022 about the R-word recession. Uh, I think the Fed has done a pretty good job of being thoughtful about navigating the risks in the US economy and navigating around the challenges that were associated with the very high levels of inflation. So I think people are feeling okay. Ultimately though, what has really helped bolster the US economy is the strength of the consumer. Consumers are spending. They may not be spending on any one given area at a certain time, so they may not be spending on clothes, they may be spending on vacations and and vice versa, but consumers are spending. And I think that is a very optimistic sign, and it shows the overall health of the U.S. economy.
1: The New York Stock Exchange is an iconic business in New York City, and I'm wondering how you see employment here in New York City in terms of people coming into the office Mm. every day. And also, what about employment at the exchange itself? There's a lot of talk, of course, about technology reducing the job footprint at the exchange.
2: Yeah, so we've been employing technology-driven solutions for many years, so AI. AI is the two letters of last year and this year, and who knows how many years to follow, but we've been using AI or large language models in our processes in two different ways. First way is clearly to add efficiencies to our processes. It doesn't mean doing things with less people, it means doing more with the people that you have enabling the people that you have to harness data, to use data effectively, given all the data that is in the world, and then put the human intelligence on top of it. So I think there is a very nice synergy between the way humans use technology and this AI-driven trend, enabling the human being to do a lot more with information that they have at their fingertips. And then importantly, We've had something in production, a large language model in production, that has driven transparency in our energy markets. It's been in production for 10 years. It's really been used meaningfully over the last two years, however. And if we look at volumes generated through that mechanism, they're, they've grown up by about 70%. So it means the humans are using it more and more to add efficiencies to their trading processes, to add transparency to our energy markets, to continue to do that higher value add type stuff that I was just talking about.
1: So you're still going to need people on the floor of the exchange, right?
2: Absolutely. If I look at the messaging rates that come through the exchange, now a message as I look at it is someone buying, someone selling, or someone saying, I'm going to hit the bid or the offer, the amount of messages that we process is almost three quarters of a trillion messages every day. No human being, no group of human beings could could handle that type of message unless you had good technology. But importantly, in fast moving markets, when things get really volatile, if you don't have a human smoothing the volatility out, you're going to have bad outcomes. You need to have that human element to really put that reactive judgment and their years of experience into the data that is coming out.
1: And final question, Lynn, you have what might be considered somewhat of an unconventional background for your role. Yep. Tell us about that a little bit in your journey.
2: Yeah. So I took a nonlinear path to the New York Stock Exchange, I like to say, Uh, I received a degree in computer science, an undergraduate. Uh, My first job was writing code for IBM. uh, And then I wound up getting a master's in statistics because I was so interested in the math that underpinned the financial markets. So uh, ultimately around the turn of the century, around Y2K, I was offered a position as markets were starting to move electronic. They needed someone who was able to talk the language that a programmer would would speak. So that's how I got my entry into the exchange industry. It's been a lot of fun. Markets have moved uh, significantly over that period of time. Again, due to technology, but importantly, due to humans who understand how to use technology and employ technology for the benefit of the ecosystem.
1: Lynn Martin, president of the New York Stock Exchange, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: This is At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll catch you next time. The production team for At Barron's is La Esmailadou, Joe Lusby, Kinga Rojjak, Rebecca Bisdale, Katie Ferguson, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producer is Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week.
0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.